Today's episode is an absolutely prime example of the multitude of ways in which conversations about books can become so, so much more than that. It is exactly the kind of discussion I envisioned having when I launched SSR back in 2018, and I can't wait for you to listen. The book in question is Jerry Spinelli's Maniac McGee, which was published in 1990 and went on to win the Newbery Medal in 1991. At face value, or at least at face value for me when I read it for the first time more than 20 years ago, it is a beautifully written quasi-fairy tale about a boy named Jeffrey, nickname Maniac McGee, who manages to unite the racially segregated neighborhoods of a Pennsylvania town as he navigates life without a home or family of his own. It's populated with fantastic characters and seemingly infinite feats of mental and physical strength by Maniac himself, who reads as magical and superhuman. The ending, in which white children and children of color finally come together after years of hatred, does initially warm the heart. But with a much closer read and a few extra decades, Maniac McGee is quite a bit more complicated. These complications occupy quite a bit of today's episode. We explore questions like, what does the fact that Maniac McGee won the Newbery Medal say about race discourse in the 90s? How were teachers teaching this book to their students? How do we read Maniac McGee differently in the context of evolving conversations about ideas of colorblindness, white saviorism, and various types of privilege? We also touch on some lighter topics, including our favorite snack cakes and a few especially charming characters. A few quick trigger warnings. Obviously, there is a great deal of conversation around racism on episode 211, as well as a very brief mention of sexual abuse. Please listen with care. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Jordan Hernandez, who you might know from Instagram as Completely Booked. Check out her feed to learn more about her amazing book club, which focuses on representation and books written by folks from marginalized communities. You can also visit www.jordanandjoelleonline.com to learn more about Jordan's other endeavors, among them, some very cool bookish merch. Big thanks to Jordan for engaging in this meaningful discussion with me and for bringing her insights to our community. Get to know more about the SSR community on social media. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you enjoy what you hear today, please share a screenshot of the episode to your social platform of choice and tag me so I can see. This, along with leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, is the best way to spread the word about the pod. Now that you have the word about the pod, you can support my work and get to know your SSR-loving peers by becoming a patron. Members of our Patreon community contribute a few dollars each month to the show in exchange for rewards like access to the SSR Discord channel, membership in the SWR Book Club, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, and more. I love getting to know this cozy community, and I am so grateful to them for helping the pod grow. In September, the SWR Book Club in Patreon is reading Portrait of a Thief, and it is not too late to get involved. You can also get a jump on our October Book Club, which is all about admissions by Kendra James. If you would like to learn more about joining the Patreon family, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. Find your next great audiobook at Libro FM 
and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie bookstores instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Find it at libro.fm. Happy listening! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat about Maniac McGee, just books in general. So I'm, I'm excited. I know. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Yes, absolutely. So Maniac McGee, talk to me about Maniac McGee. Did you read this book when you were a kid? What was your experience with it? Why did you decide that this was the one that you wanted to read for our conversation? Yes, I did read this book as a kid. I remember reading it in fourth grade. I believe it was something that we read during the school year. So I don't remember it. I don't remember reading it as a summer reading book. Uh, and the reason why I remember that so vividly, two reasons, I should say. One, I eat, I would eat butterscotch crumpets all the time. So it was actually when we would go to church in the morning on like Sunday mornings as a, as a family, of course, that early in the morning, right? Sometimes church service, depending on when we were doing it, would start anywhere between 6.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m., depending on what the service was at that at that given time. And really nothing for breakfast is open that early in the morning, except for like very fast convenience stores, like a Wawa or a gas station store. So course, my parents, you know, rushing two young children, I have a twin sister, out of the house to go to church that early in the morning on a Sunday, we just would grab something quick for breakfast. And more times than not, we would get butterscotch crimpets from the like, you know, either gas station or Wawa or 7-Eleven, wherever we stopped that morning. So I remember when I read it in fourth grade, nobody else in my class knew what butterscotch crimpets were, <laughs> tasty cake uh, snack. Yeah. And I knew what they were. I was like, oh, they're so good. I remember my teacher bought them. And then I also remember not reading this for summer in particular, because my mom, we, we would drive so many different places over the summer, and she would have us read our summer reading books out loud. Just one, to practice our reading. Two, she knew what we were reading about. And then three, we would have conversations about it when we were younger. And I don't remember doing that with this book. So I had to have read it during the school year, but I know it was fourth grade that I read this book in particular. I feel like we need to take a moment to talk about Tasty Cakes. Yes. (laughs) Because I don't know that everybody has a frame or a point of reference for Tasty Cakes. It is sort of a regional thing. Is Um, it? Yeah. So I I feel like I missed, are you from Philly? I'm from New Jersey. Okay. So, I mean, close enough. Yeah. So, 
I am from Philly. My dad grew up in Philly. I live in Philly now. I have not always been in Philly, but I have a lot of like Philly sort of reference points. And I learned when I went to college that not everybody knows what a tasty cake is or people don't know what Wawa is. Like I know people don't know what Wawa is, but I didn't know about tasty cake. Yeah. So I actually, at one point I wrote an article for um, the kitchen, which is like a food website about, and the, the, it was about like, what's a regional food that like is meaningful to you. And I discovered that tasty cakes did not mean to others what they mean to me. And like, I wrote this whole thing about how (laughs) my dad introduced me to tasty cakes and how that was like a thing that he used to pack for me in my lunch and what that meant. So like, let's talk about just the majesty of tasty (laughs) cakes. So I am a chocolate, like a double chocolate cupcake girl, but they're basically like pre-wrapped tasty cake cake. yeah (laughs) probably like the the fakest food you could put in your body ever yeah uh but they're delicious so i admittedly i'm a little bit more of a drake's fan okay i do like drake's coffee cakes drake's coffee cakes are superior but like they had um like ding dongs like drake's just had a little bit more than i think tasty cake but they're the butterscotch trumpets i I, that that literally, I, like I said, going to church Sundays, mornings, like that's what we would have. I tried to find them today. Actually, my sister tried to find them today so I could eat them while I was, you know, doing this. And I we couldn't find them in the grocery store uh, today. So I was just like, oh, I really wanted them. But I'll have to go to some like random gas station. So I don't even have a car. I'll have to go to some random gas station somewhere and try to try to find them. <laughs> see if the one by my parents' house still has them. Yeah, when I lived in New York, I, I would see Tasty Cakes at the most random places because they didn't sell them at like standard grocery stores or, or yeah. drugstores. And so every once in a while, I would see them. And I was like, oh, feels like home. Um, <laughs> my dad is a peanut butter tandy cakes guy. I think that's what they're called. And also butterscotch crimpets. I've never been a butterscotch crimpets girl, but they feature heavily in this book. And listeners, if you can get your hands on a tasty cake, please let us know. Let us know what you choose. (laughs) Let us know what you think of your selection. And it's cake with a K, right? So don't look for the wrong thing. It's tasty cake with a a K. Very good clarification. Important (laughs) point of clarification. So yeah, Maniac McGee, our protagonist, loves tasty cakes, loves butterscotch crimpets. Mm-hmm. I love that memory, Jordan, that that's how you sort of like create the context for this reading experience. <laughs> also, what a cool mom that you were like reading your books aloud in the backseat of the car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when I was younger and I know we will probably chat about this a little bit, but I really didn't enjoy reading, right? Like when I first started learning how to read for second, third grade, I guess you're still kind of learning and developing your reading skills then. And I really didn't, it just wasn't my thing, reading comprehension tests, I failed. Those tests were like the teacher would say the sentence out loud and you had to write all the words and like there was a random spelling word in there. Horrible. Like, and I'm a very, I was a very good student. I was very good in school. Grades were very important to me, but just that in particular, I absolutely hated. And then I started reading magazines and my mom really introduced us to magazines. My dad reads, reads a lot of magazines as well. And we just, I fell in love with that. And then as I got older and kept, you know, growing and things like that, I kept reading and the reading out loud really, really did that. We really did it because we went to predominantly white schools. And when you're reading books like this about racism, my mom was like, I just want to know what it is that the conversation is going to be so that I can equip you. We can have very honest conversations. This book doesn't particularly have it, but a lot of other required reading for younger children has the N-word in, in books, right? So what does that even mean to a 
fifth grader that's reading these books with that word in it. So it's it, that was really why we started doing it. And then, of course, just reading out loud and, and getting better at it. Yeah, I used to love reading out loud when I was a kid. I think it made me feel like my teacher. I was like, oh, like I have authority. And I used to read out loud for <laughs> right. magazines. And I, I spent a lot of time alone because I was an only child half the time when I was at my mm. mom's house. And so I would just like read aloud to myself. So I that resonates with me. But I want to talk more about the subject matter of of Maniac McGee because you mentioned that it is a book about race and more specifically about racism. Mm -hmm. I will say that I did read this book when I was a kid, but it's not one that stuck with me. And so I remember like the old cover of it that has a sneaker. Yes, I have two versions of this book. I have this one that's right here, and I don't know what I did with the other one. When I ordered them, two came in, oh. and I'm pretty sure I have the old version as well. It's somewhere, I have books all around my apartment. It's somewhere in here. <laughs> yeah, I can picture that one. And then the, the 25th anniversary edition, of course, is the one that came in when I ordered it for this conversation. Yeah. But I can picture the old cover in my head. I probably read it at about the same time, maybe fourth grade. I've talked about this on the show before, but I, I have this very strong memory of things being like girl books versus boy books. And this felt very much to me like a boy book, boy which book. is a whole yeah. other conversation, of course, and something that I hope is shifting. Uh -huh. But I did read this book and I didn't remember what it was about. I was a big Jerry Spinelli fan and I've reread a couple of his books over the years. But I was like, okay, cool. Like the book about the sneakers. Awesome. Just because the subject matter has not stuck with me. And I'm sure there are reasons for that that we'll get into and as always when we talk about a book like this I have to acknowledge that I'm a white woman I was raised in very white communities taught by primarily if not all white teachers until I was in college yeah and interestingly this book is set in Norristown well it's set in a sort of made-up version of Norristown which is where Jerry Spinelli grew up and Norristown is about 10 minutes away from where I am currently sitting. So um, while I did not grow up in quite this segregated of a community, like a lot of those references and, and like the culture mm -hmm. uh, and the, the cultural context, I guess, is similar. And so I was trying to be very mindful of that because Two Mills, uh, which is the town that Maniac McGee finds himself in, is based in Norristown. So mm. Yeah, this is, um, there's a lot going on in this yes. book. Let's just, let's <laughs> dive in. It was published in 1990. It won the Newbery Medal in 1991, which means yes. that it was considered by the American Library Association to be the single best contribution to children's literature in 1991. Mm, that says a lot about 1991. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that I think it might say a lot about 2022 as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, but I, there's just so much to dig into here. Where do we begin? Where do you want to start, Jordan? Well, you know, and to your point of remembering reading it when I was younger, I truly, once I picked this book, when when you reached out to me, I really only remember the Butterscotch Crimpets, right? So that says, just says a lot yeah. about the book in general. I really didn't remember that it was a book about race. And I do think that that one has a lot to do with the teachers that I had. I don't know that they appropriately addressed race with any book that we've read. We probably read books about slaves. They didn't even appropriately address racism with that. But I also think that Jerry Spinelli's take on race with the segregated two towns and black and white was very, very 1991, <laughs> uh, very, very like fictional of that you just have this kid who just wants a sense of belonging, just wants to fit in and that he just seemingly doesn't see color. And I do think that 
I've never known so much about the 80s, but definitely in the 90s, even the early 2000s, the thing was at the time to, to, to proclaim that you weren't racist was to say, I don't see in color. And that's what was the like politically correct thing at the time was, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't see in color. It doesn't matter to me if they're white or black. Whereas now, and as it always should be, is, yes, I do see in color and I see your difference and I accept your difference and I celebrate your difference and I want to get to know more about your difference, but I'm not going to treat you unequally. I'm going to give you equitable opportunities no matter your difference. Uh, whereas in the 90s, like I said, it was a little bit more like kumbaya, all sing harmony, and let's just pretend that this world is is amazing. And I think that he captures that in a couple of different ways throughout his book with Maniac just being like ignorant basically to racism and him kind of just like throwing this fictional character. Obviously we know a child would never be running for days, years by themselves or anything like that. Uh, so he just kind of throws this seemingly ignorant kid into a racist world. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about color blindness because it's something that like like as I was reading this book and I think my journey with coming back to this book as an adult almost mirrors like my personal evolution and like my ongoing understanding of racism as an adult because as I was reading it I was like wow like this is such beautiful prose like right. what gorgeous <laughs> metaphors and I was so in it and in the story and it is written like a fable, which I think is, mm -hmm. is something worth discussing in itself because it almost puts the bigger issues that the book addresses like at an arm's distance because it's like, oh, this, right. is, this is just a story. It, it almost feels magical. Like Maniac McGee doesn't feel like he could be a real kid, which almost removes this whole situation from real life. And it, it is very real. Like we know that it is very real. So I'm reading this book and I was like, wow, like what, what an interesting way to contextualize racism. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, yeah. oh, wait, there are so many problems here. And the biggest one of those problems is this overall theme of colorblindness and that being Maniac's, his real name's Jeffrey, by the way, but that being Maniac's like primary approach to people. And I think you know, I echo everything that you said, Jordan, about like how I remember that colorblind approach being what I learned right to do as like a kind, yeah. empathetic human as a white person when I was growing up. And I have done a lot of reading and I'm trying to continue to do a lot of reading and listening about why that's a problem. But in addition to everything you said about like what being colorblind means and, and what the drawbacks are and how we should actually be seeing color, I would add to that as a white person that it's like, I want to celebrate difference and I want to understand difference. And I also in not being blind to color, acknowledge that my circumstances and my whiteness has yeah. privileged me in ways that others are not privileged. And and if you if you are blind to color, it might make you feel like you're like a better human because you treat people equally, but like right. it also gives you an escape hatch kind of because you're like, oh, well, like if I'm not seeing color in other people, then I don't have to see it in myself. And and listeners, right. like maybe this feels, maybe you all know this, maybe you've had these conversations, but I also know there are a lot of people that aren't having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure we're not losing sight of that because it's something that's been 
really big for me and just learning and listening over the last couple of years. And so I did a lot of processing of Maniac McGee's colorblindness as I was reading. Well, that's the thing. I think the conversation previously and definitely when we were growing up was all about equality. And even when you hear quotes by Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, everyone dwells on the conversation of equality when now we've shifted the conversation, rightfully so, to equity. And that is being able to look at an equitable scenario, equitable situation as a person, in your case, who's white, me, I grew up money privileged, right? I mean, my, we weren't, we were not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but we never wondered where our next meal was coming from or anything like that. And that does have innate privilege. I grew up with married parents, loving married parents. I grew up in a home that my parents owned, right? That comes with a lot of privilege as well. And so looking at equitable scenarios instead of equal scenarios, are you have to acknowledge your privilege when you're looking at that. I, we talk about this a lot of work that the company that I work for, we do different advocacy and awareness campaigns. And our articles that we talk about talk a lot about equity. And a lot of people are like, I don't understand what that means and how I always describe it. If And for listeners who don't know the difference between equality and equity, equity to me, when I was growing up, I had a, there was a, a girl in my class growing up who couldn't really see. I do think maybe eventually she would be legally blind. I'm not sure, but she, her, she had, she was very, very visually impaired. And in order to take her test at the time, of course, we didn't have computers, right? Everybody took handwritten tests. Her test needed to be printed on larger print paper, just as smart as everybody else, if not smarter, she just needed, she couldn't see the paper. So in that case, if the teacher was giving everyone an equal opportunity, she would have gotten the exact same printout that the rest of the class got. And the teacher could have said, I am being equal to all of my students. And I would have been able to see it, but my classmate wouldn't have been able to. An equitable opportunity is for me to have the paper printed out regularly, I could see, and her to have it blown up, right? Her to have it a little bit bigger. With that, you, I have to acknowledge that I have the privilege of being able to see. Yes, I wear glasses and I wear contacts, but as soon as I put those on, I could see an eight and a half by 11, 12 point font paper. She cannot. So I have to acknowledge my own privilege in that scenario and then also be able to cater to her. And that is what we're asking of the world. And that is what's not depicted at all in this book. And I think that that was the biggest missing opportunity there. Um, Again, a product of the 90s. But if we're awarding things at the time, that's what shows how problematic it is of how we kind of have acknowledged race in this country, even just within our lifetimes. Yeah, and it occurs to me as, as you share this really valuable, important information that in setting up Maniac McGee himself as a character who is struggling in a lot of other ways, like he is homeless when we meet him, he's experiencing homelessness, he's been orphaned, and then his aunt and uncle, who he went to live with after his parents were killed in a train accident, they they were on a high-speed train that fell off a bridge or, or came off a bridge in some way, um, he goes to live with his with his aunt and uncle, who hate each other, but are extremely Catholic and are strict in their Catholic beliefs. And so they refuse to get divorced and he gets sick of the arguments. And so he runs away and he is experiencing homelessness again Mm -hmm. after running and running and running for days on end (laughs) in sort of a Forrest Gump manner. (laughs) And so when we find him, he is on his own. He at times throughout the book is living at the zoo. He is living in the park. He's living in the baseball 
closet of the band shell at the town park like he is dealing with a lot of different disadvantages and it makes me think of like some podcasts that I've heard over the last few years one in particular with Dak Shepard on Armchair Expert where he kind of got a little fired up about this phrase white privilege which you know he talks about how you know he grew up poor and he was molested and like all of these other things right. and somebody finally said to him like okay great yes sure all those things happen right. to you but right. what you need to understand is that there are a lot of ways in which you were not privileged but not mm-hmm. being white was not one of them like, one of them right. exactly and so I think right. it's interesting like I, I don't know that Jerry Spinelli thought all of this through because I don't know that we were talking, well, I know for a fact that we weren't talking about things then the way that we are now. We certainly weren't referencing white privilege, that's for sure. We certainly were not, but it's kind of interesting. Like, I wonder if even subconsciously there was this part of him that was like, okay, so we're going to approach race and racism in this book, but I want to make sure that the white kid is also kind of coming from behind in in some ways. Right, right, exactly. No, I, I agree, and I do think that that's a larger conversation and I've seen other people similar to Dak Shepard post well I grew up and up with nothing and my story is a rags to riches story or a rags to still rags story like I don't have privilege and you know maybe I grew up in an in this case an orphan and uh, as Maniac McGee is and they just don't understand that it will never nothing will ever be done against them especially as a man will never be done against them because of their whiteness and because of their maleness especially if they're straight middle class Catholic or Protestant, whatever it is, like nothing will ever be against them simply because of those things, a lot of which you don't get to choose. There are certain things that if you just choose to not have a, not make a lot of money and be a little bit lazy, okay, some people put themselves in those situations and maybe that's a little bit of a different scenario. But I don't know that many of us are asking to be the gender that we are. I don't know that many of us are asking to be the race that we are. I don't know that many of us are asking for the parents that we have. If you could find that somewhere, I guess we could try to figure that out. But in this case, I I, I think that it just wasn't anything on Jerry Spinelli's radar. I don't know that he would have known any different, especially as a white man yeah. in the United States. Like, this is, it's just so wild to me to like, look back it's it's like i've never read 1984 but it's like looking back in 2022 and knowing that all the stuff that's in there still has yet to happen or watching like the uh jetsons right he was supposed to be born on what was it i think it was july 22nd 2022 or something like that and we're like we don't have flying cars we don't have these (laughs) things so looking back now of course you and i could sit obviously as as a person of color and you as an educated person can sit here and say oh my god this is so wild but in the 90s and 1991, this probably was groundbreaking to a certain group of people. I feel very similar to this book as I do when people reference not even the attacks on 9-11, but the aftermath of the attacks on 9-11. And, and a lot of us have these rose-colored glasses where we say, oh, the whole country came together in that time and it was beautiful and everyone just, you know, it didn't matter if you were a Democrat or Republican or if you were Black or white, you were just American and we all came together. And I see these posts now, and I'm sure we will see them, well, this podcast will air after September 11th of 2022, but I'm sure we have seen them, where I'm like, no, we just didn't have social media at that time, right? So you saw what was on the news, we had like the, the commercials and things like that, but it wasn't it wasn't all rainbows and sunshine for Americans, right? It wasn't that we all were just waving our flags and we were so patriotic. 
there was still racism. I'm sure if you ask a Middle Eastern person what it was like after 9-11, they will not tell you. We were all coming together and singing Kumbaya. Uh, so this, this book very much is a product of its time. And I just think that the author, you know, how would, I'm not giving him a pass, but how would he have known anything else to, to do if he want like at that point, just don't write about race, right? There's a gazillion other topics that you can chat about. I just don't think that if, if he wanted to write about race, which obviously he did, I don't know that we could have expected anything else uh, from, from him. Yeah, those are all excellent points. And of course, I, I want to, again, like remind readers who don't know, like Jerry Spinelli, if I haven't mentioned this, is a white man. man. Um, <laughs> and we've, these conversations have come up in the past. Uh, I think, especially I can remember our conversation about Island of the Blue Dolphins, which was written by Scott O'Dell, a white man, which of course in hindsight is extremely problematic because he's not only writing about indigenous folks, but also about a young girl. And so that feels really icky in hindsight. Yeah. I think we perhaps 20, 30 years down the road, like might feel similarly about this Mm -hmm. book. Although at this point, I'm not sure that we're there yet because I think at least like we have access to Jerry Spinelli in a way that we don't have access to Scott O'Dell after all these years. Like we can ask Jerry (laughs) Spinelli questions. And I think in general, Jerry Spinelli is a pretty unproblematic guy. Right. He's a beloved author. And while I'm sure there are things that he could have done differently, should have done differently, like we are in a position to sort of like interrogate him about these mm-hmm. issues. And again, he seems likable enough. So, um, but of course, we just want to be, we want to be mindful of the fact that, <laughs> yes, while he was writing about a, a primarily like a white protagonist in this book, he's exploring issues that pertain to black communities. Yeah. And he's, he's writing in a very close third person perspective, uh, I would say at times from the point of view of several black characters. So I, I think that's maybe something yeah. that he would tweak. I would like to think he would tweak. The The more recent piece of pop culture that this book reminded me of is the movie, um, The Green Book, I think it was called. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, because that was a book. I can't remember when that movie came out. I feel like it was like 2017, 2018. The movie, as I said, must have been 20. 20- 18. Yeah. It was definitely yeah. I mean, I know it was, it was pre-pandemic because I remember I saw it in a movie theater. Yeah. I have not been to the movie theater since since COVID. Uh, yeah. So it was definitely like 2018, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right because it was like right in that pocket between Trump's election and all of the madness of 2020 Yeah, <laughs> and a reckoning for all of us in so many different ways. Um, and I remember like, yeah, quite frankly, like a lot of white people being like, wow, like this movie taught me a lot about race. (laughs) And I mean, sure, I guess it's a great perspective. (laughs) Right. It's a a start to say you you can, you can start chatting about race. It's a story. It's a great, it's a great line. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a well-produced story. It's a beautifully written story. It's a beautifully imagined story. Like I remember thinking it was pretty to watch and like the music was great and you know, all of these other Mm -hmm. things, but then it's not, it's not, it's it's just not doing it all the way. And that, I think that's where we need to talk more. This book with him with, especially like we mentioned earlier with it being so fantasized with maniac, like, you know, even as a child, I'm sure when I read this when I was in fourth grade, I knew that there was no child just running through the streets of wherever for days on end and going from house to house and just not having a home and living with 
lions and tigers and bears. Like I knew that that wasn't true. And so I think to an extent that it makes the feelings of black people in particular in this book, any, you know, name any other marginalized group of people in any other book, it makes their woes not seem real. So that then when they are experiencing actual racism, like um, in the names, the name is escaping me, but the football player in the book and, you know, the, the parents don't want him around and all that. Those are very real things that happen and still happen. And it makes it seem like, oh, you're just being ridiculous. It's not about race. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what this is. And I just think that, again, it goes back to a white male writing about racism when he hasn't experienced it. I, I don't want to say that a white male can't write about write about race. I think he just needs to do it in a way that is actually relevant to him. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, you're writing very close third person narratives, you're writing actual cultural references for black people. And my question to Jerry Spinelli before he wrote this book, and even now, how many black homes have you actually spent a night in? Right, so you're throwing Maniac McGee in these scenarios where he's living in black people's homes. Whose home, whom have you slept in their home for even just a night, right? Who, what black family have you spent more than 12 hours with? Because some of the ways that the the kids in this book speak to their parents would never fly in a black house. Like if we're just starting there, I was like, when I was reading this, I was like, okay, this is so clearly written by a non-black person. I'm not even gonna say a white person. I'm going to say a non-black person because this stuff would just never fly, right? So I was just like, it's a, it's a little bit removed. And by him, by Maniac being a very fantasized character, it makes racism seem fantasized. And I, and I think Green Book, Green Book does a similar thing. Yeah. Oh, so, so interesting. Something else that I found fascinating was that this book shortly after it was published was actually sort of controversial and challenged by a lot of parents and librarians, mm-hmm. but now reflecting on the reasons why it was challenged by teachers and librarians, of course, it's so different than anything that I think we would question today. So um, in the nineties, people were upset because they were worried that this book would encourage kids to run away, which like valid. I mean, Maniac does seem <laughs> to run away quite a bit. They also were upset because there's light profanity, although I can't remember like exactly mm-hmm. where that came up. And then I guess there were uh, Catholic organizations that were up in arms because they felt as though the book exhibited some anti-Catholic sentiment, I guess, because of the aunt and uncle who were like, and it's so, it's just like, it's such a sign of how things change because of course now I am like waiting to find more references to, to challenges that come up now to do with yeah. this white savior complex that mm-hmm. we see in the book. Um, and that's starting, I found one blog post in particular that I'll make sure to link in the show notes that was written by somebody like me, a white adult who's like rereading all of these books from their childhood. And I believe the blog is actually called uh, Reading While White. And so they're going back and rereading a lot of books that are written by authors of color and also um, speaking to the lack of representation in Kidlet and in other publishing categories from years gone by. And the blog post is excellent and really calls out a lot of key moments where Maniac McGee is portrayed as a white savior and just sort of the overall vibe of this book is one of white saviorism, which is also reminiscent of Green Book. 
Yeah, well, very problematic in general. And also when you think about, like you said before, you had have had white teachers your entire life. It took me to get to college to have and to actually have a black teacher teach me. I had a couple of teachers of color in my high school, but I just never had them like as actual teachers. And those are the people who were teaching me the these books, right? You would read them and you would go through them. And I just wonder, again, when you're a child, you don't really think about these things, especially when this is being taught to you. And I had, I still have amazing representation of Black leaders in my life, and I always have. But sitting in a class like this, I just, it was just, I guess it was just so normal to me. But there's no way that this is appropriately taught, right? One, it's just a very hard book to appropriately teach because of the way that it's given to the reader. And then also when you're pairing that with mostly white teachers, I, I just, you know, I can't help but wonder, I'm like, I just wish I was a fly on the wall to like go back to, I was in fourth grade in 2000, 2001, 2002, because uh, that's, I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened. So I wonder, I just wonder what the conversation was like, like what was the lesson plan that day? What did we, what did we review? Because I just can't help but think that the white savior complex was probably hyped up first and foremost, and that's what usually happens with anything. If you if you read, um, what is it, the Freedom Writers and Coach Carter and all of those movies and books. And I just can't help but think that non-educated, non, I'm not gonna say non-educated white people because I had very educated, I went to a very good school. I had educated teachers, but educated in this sense, what could they have possibly said to us? And then what was the difference between the year that I, took these courses and they had a black student in their class versus the years that they didn't because there were definitely grades above me and below me that had no black students in them in my uh, school. So I can only, I can't help but think that maybe the lesson was a little bit different because I was sitting there or was it? Uh, so I just, I, I, don't, I would be very interested to kind of go back and, and ask. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this book is, even the way I read it now is reflective of the way that I was taught to like quote handle racism when I was yeah in, because it's treated as this very interpersonal issue and this very like individual quote issue again like this is just like yeah. an issue that we can deal <laughs> with if we just like approach the right people so maniac is navigating these two sides of town west end where all of the citizens are white and then the east end where all the citizens are black and the two never interact and this is kind of the world that he's dropped into and he's put in this situation and it's like he figures out the right people to talk to mm -hmm. he talks to a few people like grayson being one of them who is the older white man who takes him under his wing when he goes to the east end and he realizes for example that like grayson has never been around a black person and so right. he's like oh if i can just like bridge the gap between grayson <laughs> right. and some black people like everything will be okay. Everything's gonna be great. And vice versa, like he, you know, there's many passages and I might read some of them before the end of this recording yeah. where he is like literally just saying like, oh, if only people could understand how much they had in common and appreciated that as much as they understood each other's differences, then everything would be okay. And I do feel like that's how I was taught both by right, exactly. my very well-intentioned and educated parents and by my teachers, because I think we were not yet at a point where we were talking about racism, at least in white communities, or at least in predominantly white communities, right. as like a systemic structural problem. Mm -hmm. Instead, it was about like being a good human and practicing empathy. Right. And I think at the time, like in a lot of ways, 
not to give anybody a free pass. Like, I think that was ahead of its time because not all white communities were talking about that. So it was like the efforts were being made, but this book misses the mark in the same way because it's like Maniac McGee gets to be the hero and he gets to unite both sides of this town just by being empathetic. Right. And yes, that's a great start. But of course, now we know that this is a much larger problem and right and that with the west end folks and the east end folks were never going to have their problem solved simply by one white child one orphan that just doesn't even know who's colorblind (laughs) like he shows up with a great attitude and you know the best of intentions and a general oblivion to racism like he can fix it just because he bridges the gap like if only it were that easy Right, exactly. Well, and I, th- and I think that that's taught in so many different areas of racism too, right? When you think about Martin Luther King, like I mentioned before, like the, the stories that were taught about him, like we're not taught that, you know, sure, we find out that he's like arrested when we were younger, but we're not taught about the really in-depth things, the FBI, you know, having him being like a target for them, why he was a target for them. We're hardly even taught about him being killed, right? And we're just kind of like, oh, he did all this wonderful work and then like kind of died. But also he did all this wonderful work. Like he doesn't like really, we don't really, really dwell on the hardships too much. We have all of his pictures in black and white when there were very much color pictures when Martin Luther King was was alive. And so I just think that that's one small subset of examples of how we're taught. And I think to your point from before, when I said that this, you know, it's very telling in 1891, that this was a book that was awarded. And we said it's very telling of 2022. It's just very clear that the age group of people who read this book growing up are now the adults that are in hiring rooms, policy makers, uh, politicians, you know, leaders, community, key community leaders. It's just very clear because we're starting to have those conversations and it's difficult, right? I can imagine if I was a white person and someone says, oh yeah, well, this is the fault of all white people. You're immediately going to get defensive. Anybody is going to get defensive if you throw the blame on them and you know, whoa, I didn't do anything. I I was taught to not see in color. I was taught that this was fine. And yes, and I read Maniac McGee. And I know that if I bridge these two, I have black friends, I have white friends, I have Latino friends, I have Asian friends, and I just, I hang out with all of them. Yes, but do you have a conversation with each of them of where where stereotypes come from and why why you need to know, like I said, Why is it that a black household is going to be run very differently than a white household, right? As a mother in a black household, you can't let your kids get away with certain things because we know when they go out in the world and the cops have to handle them very different than than what a white child can get away with and then go out in the world and the cops have to handle them. We've seen that now. And again, I don't know that that was exposed enough at that time. We had, okay, I was actually born during the Rodney King riots. That was probably one of the like biggest things that was caught on camera where we saw police brutality, but it wasn't every single day. Think about that and how much the media controlled that in comparison to how many times you probably saw George Floyd's video tossed around. Uh, and that just is completely different. You can completely escape from the Rodney King riots if you chose to. You couldn't, there was just, there was zero escaping George Floyd. There was no you could not escape it. And even if you did shut off the news, one, you really couldn't because it was COVID and you had to pay attention. But if you actually did shut off the news, it was on your social media. If you shut off Instagram, it was on Twitter. If you shut off Twitter, it was on LinkedIn. If you shut off LinkedIn, it was on Facebook. And I just don't think, I keep going back to this point, but I just don't think that we would have gotten anything else besides white savior complex from this book. 
Oh, I feel like we could have these like big picture conversations about this book for several more hours, forever. forever. <laughs> Maybe we will have a part two. I do want to dig into a couple of specific plot points and characters because yeah. as much as I feel like I have a lot of questions for Jerry Spinelli after coming back to this book as an adult, like he is a fantastic author. Yeah, yeah. And he brings a lot of magic to the page. So um, I feel like we've addressed a lot of the sort of structural issues that we see with this book. Mm-hmm. I have concerns. <laughs> I have lodged them. Jerry Spinelli, if you're listening, I'd love to chat with you about this. Oh, I have so many questions. So many questions. All of the questions. <laughs> but like, let's let's just switch the vibe up and talk about Amanda Beale because is there any better way to turn this conversation around than with Amanda Beale, who is the first friend that Maniac meets when he is out on his own after days and weeks and months of running and he meets Amanda Beale. Amanda Beale is like who I want to be when I grow up and she is a child (laughs) and she carries every book she owns around town with her because she is so afraid that her little siblings will write in them. Yeah. I was like, Oh, Amanda. And I just love that she was coerced to give him the book, right? I mean, again, way savior. But if we're looking at it from from rose-colored glasses, that she gave up the book to him, and just how concerned he was when the book, when the the page was taken out of the book, and to give her back an encyclopedia as the book went on. There were just so many things that she, so many great moments with her, right? I was like, okay, first of all, she's the original, completely booked queen that always has a always has a book with her, and then like you said, just so many moments throughout the book that she's just kind of the ray of sunshine but also the dose of reality that I think he needs it it kind of came together both both ways yes and I like that Jerry Spinelli gave her some agency in sort of like crafting maniacs persona she does little PR for him at one point because (laughs) after a couple of weeks of living with Amanda's family um they welcome him in and like he literally like sleeps on the floor in her bedroom they just accept him as one of their own the people in town get sick of him and and I actually do want to read there's a section of uh that chapter where we really see maniacs just general obliviousness to the fact that he is white and he is living in a black community. So there's a whole chapter where, where Maniac is like reflecting on all of the things that he loves about his new life and like how great it is. Um, And then the narrative voice kind of takes a step back and acknowledges that like, oh, well, there's kind of like a thing that he's missing. It says Maniac loved almost everything about his new life, but everything did not love him back. Maniac kept trying, but he still couldn't see it, this color business. He didn't figure he was white any more than the East Enders were black. He looked himself over pretty hard and came up with at least seven different shades and colors right on his own skin, not one of them being what he would call white, except for his eyeballs, which weren't any whiter than the eyeballs of the kids in the East End, which was all a big relief to Maniac, finding out he wasn't really white because the way he figured white was about the most boring color of all. But there it was, piling up around him, dislike. Not from everybody, but enough. And Maniac couldn't see it. And then all of a sudden, he could. So this is when the tides turn. And uh, there's like a hot summer day. And they're all like playing outside. They open up the fire hydrants. And there's just water everywhere. You can picture it. And there's an older man who basically is like, we've had it with you. Why are you here? Get out of here. Yeah, there are some lines that I pulled out. He says, it's never enough, is it, Whitey? Just want more and more. Won't even leave us our little water in the street. You got your own kind. It's how you wanted it. Let's keep it that way. 
what happens when we go over there? White is white. The sheep lie not with the lion. The sheep knows his own, his own kind. Mm-hmm. And so Amanda's like, okay, we got to figure out how to get things back on track with your image. Like she's literally his image consultant. <laughs> right. And in the sweetest. Right. And she's protecting him to, to be able to stay there safely. Right. She loves him. They're friends. I mean, yeah. I think that she really needed him because she is living in a house with these little kids who are just ruining her stuff all the time. Right. And she's like, okay, we have to figure this out. And in the sweetest kid sort of way, she's like, okay, I think if you can untangle this giant knot, that's kind of notorious in town. Like everybody has tried to undo this knot. It's called the cobbler's knot. She's like, okay, I think if you can do this and you can, because obviously you're maniac McGee and you can do do like incredible (laughs) athletic feats and you're so smart, then I think everybody will be on your side again. And so she stages this whole plan for him to untie the cobbler's knot, and he does it. Does it. And it, it doesn't really work the way Amanda thought it would. <laughs> well, I just, I also just love the whole spectacle that he's allergic to pizza. Yes. Right, again, fantasy. Of course, I mean, you could be lactose intolerant or whatever, but you're not going to just, just be allergic to pizza. And he's doing this whole thing for pizza it was like for like a year right or lifetime yeah. must be like that and yeah she's she's interesting again going back to the point where like things just that wouldn't happen in a black household two little kids would never ruin their older siblings just things without getting in trouble all the time and like getting in trouble to the point where it stopped in a black household so again when i read that i was like mm, not true but um but i think you know amanda kind of pulling him together, especially after these comments are made by just various people in the neighborhood. She has a sense of of ignorance too, I think, when it comes to color. But I do think that it's just more that I do think Jerry Spinelli got right with the with the black community of being very welcoming and just kind of being like, okay, of course, we see this down and out kid, of course, he's going to stay with us. Maybe some people say some stray comments here and there. But we're going to make sure that he's cared for and it doesn't really matter that if we went to their side of the tracks we would probably die but if he's here and needs help we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and and take care of him maniac's next ally or advocate after he has run out of out of town in east end is grayson and grayson is this old caretaker who used to play in the minor leagues And he's this like curmudgeonly character. He doesn't like to talk about his baseball career. And Maniac gets him to open up after really working hard at it. And there were some really sweet moments between the two of them. Um, He teaches Grayson to read because Grayson never learned to read. And so they work at that for a long time. There's a lot in this section of the book about the concept of home and what home means and maniac really wants an address like he he talks a lot about how like he doesn't want to go to school because kids who go to school also have a place to go at night and if he doesn't have a place to go at night then he doesn't want to go be with the kids during the day because then he'll just have to watch them all leave and so until he has an address he doesn't want to go to school and so he's kind of dodging school and finally after a number of months with Grayson, he he decides that he's going to give himself an address and he's living in this closet in the Banshell at the park and he writes like 101 Banshell Avenue on the yeah. door, which is so sweet. They have Thanksgiving together in this closet. They have Christmas together. And then five days later, Grayson dies in his sleep, which was heartbreaking. Well, and I just, I also, it happened very rapidly. Yeah. And that was, again, another thing I didn't remember in the book. And I just, I, re- I remember actively saying, 
oh, yeah. out loud as I was reading this, riding the train to work. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay. That, yeah. And I, but I mean, that, that's reality, right? For, for some, for some people. And I guess that that was a real, real part of the book. And I just think that that goes along with Maniac's story, right? Where he, things were given to him and then pulled away, given and then pulled away. And he, I mean, he kind of bounces back from it, but it just, it completes his character of the like, just in and out of, of life that he had. That moment really cut me deep though. I was like, oh, you're not going to yeah. kill Grayson now, Jerry Spinelli. Like, please tell me you're not going to do this. <laughs> what more could go wrong? So from there, Maniac goes and he lives with the baby buffalo at the zoo, yeah. which is really sweet. And he ultimately finds himself living with a white family, the McNabs in the West End. And the McNabs are just preparing for a race war, literally. Like they talk about how they are stocking up all of these supplies mm-hmm. for the time when like there's an uprising and the boys are building what they call a pillbox, which is basically like a clubhouse, like a fortress, and they're arming themselves. And I, I read some critiques of this section and, and just sort of the stereotypes that Jerry Spinelli uses because of course he employs a lot of stereotypes with the black children, in particular um, Mars Bar, mm-hmm. who is like this really tough talking, like he uses a lot of slang kind of guy. But then on the flip side, um, this critic talks about how Jerry Spinelli uses this sort of like, for lack of a better phrase, like white trash archetype for the McNabs and in doing so sort of yeah. like distances himself and is like oh those are other white people that are racist like this is a very specific right. kind of white person who has like dog pee in the house and like trash everywhere right but maniac has a very weird stay with them too and that like this is where he sort of tries to bridge the gap he bonds with the young children of the McNabs he pushes them to go to school and ultimately he's invited to go to their birthday party yeah he keeps he's uh teasing them with like a trip to Mexico, right? Was it? Yeah. (laughs) They want to go to Mexico and he keeps being like, well, I do all of these like amazing athletic feats. Like if I do these, like you have to go to school because it gives them some street credit. And he agrees to go to their birthday party, but only if he can bring a guest. Right. And this is like, again, a moment where I just think there are so many marks (laughs) missed because Maniac's like, great. Like I'm going to bring my friend Mars Bar who's black right. and he's from the East End and everybody's going to get along. And um, I'm just going to read this one section from <laughs> that blog post that I referenced earlier. The blogger writes, there was one more particularly nightmarish scene I'd erased completely from my memory. About three quarters through the book, Maniac challenges Mars Bar to accompany him to the West Side. Mars Bar, whose pride will not allow him to pass up a dare, accepts maniac who knows full well that the McNabs are white supremacists who are literally building a bunker and planning to stock it with automatic weaponry to use on black people brings mars bar to a birthday party at the McNabs. yes really when mars bar asks about the bunker maniac tells him it's a bomb shelter unsurprisingly the party does not go well but thankfully mars bar leaves physically intact so again, we have like a very well-intentioned <laughs> colorblind boy being like, yeah, come on right. over. Everybody will be friends. They just may kill you. But they might kill you. Like we won't talk about it. So <laughs> he he really kind of, it was a big mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just so many things here. Again, I don't know that it would have been different, but like you said, he's, Maniac is a, is a neutral in both black and and then and, and white trash basically as as he's as he's describing this group of people that would that would be there to to save everything that would end up kind of pulling everything together and that he's not like that but he's also not like this and it's just all very 
it's just savory from all different because if you are looking i didn't even really you know i guess because i was so caught up on the black race side of things i didn't necessarily overly pay attention i mean I knew what the McNabs were doing but to think of them in that way um i've read i don't know if you've read cast by isabel wilkerson and it just chat talks about the caste system and it's so true right when you think about like poor white people, very, very, very poor white people, some may say trash, they're still not black, right? Like there's there's still a little bit above black people in the United States. Um, and he kind of, I guess, by having that group of people as the white people and then black people, to him is probably on the same playing field or a very similar playing field. And Maniac is in the middle to like be this God, literally like overseeing everything and, and bring bringing groups of people together. Yeah, he's in that Venn diagram overlap section. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so to some extent, I guess we can say that Maniac McGee does succeed in his efforts to bring people together. Um, Mars Bar ends up rescuing one of the McNabb children because Maniac gets some PTSD about remembering his parents falling off the bridge and to their death. And so in the end, like it does seem that there's some resolution. We know, of course, in 2022 as adults that this this would never work. This will never happen. No. This is not sustainable. <laughs> but on the whole, Jordan, I'm curious, given everything that we've talked about today and to sort of sum it up, how do you think that this book holds up to any memories that you have of it? And if you don't have any specific memories of it, I guess just kind of how does it hold up compared to 1990? Yeah, I mean, I think it says a lot that the only thing I remembered was the food. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I think that that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, I think it's it's it opens up a really great conversation, just like we had just now. And I think that if somebody else was to read it, or even if a child was to read it, I would be interested to see a maybe like sixth or seventh grader that's in a diverse school reading this book, what their thoughts would be about it, so that you could still have that childhood kind of ignorant innocent perspective, but to know that these children are growing up in a much better world, seemingly in some areas than we than we grew up in. So I'd be interested to see that. But I think overall, it doesn't hold up. Um, if I'm being honest, I'm very happy I reread it. Because like I said, I didn't really remember much of anything besides of the crumpets at all um, of this book. So I'm very happy that I reread it. But it definitely didn't age well, is what I will say. It has some wrinkles. It needs some retinol. Well said. Uh, beautifully written, as as all of Jerry Spinelli's work Of course. Is, yeah. does not age well in other ways. Other than Maniac McGee, Jordan, what have you been reading lately? Maybe that has aged better uh, or is newer that you would recommend to our listeners today. Yeah. So I actually read on, on the topic of this. It's it's interesting. I actually just read and I did an Instagram live with the author a book called Therapy Isn't Just for White People. And it's uh, the author is Kiara Imani and this is her first book. It is a memoir and it's a bunch of short stories. She's a black woman that wrote this book and grew up in very white spaces. Um, she like grew up with no black people besides her parents. And it just, it of course addresses the topic of mental health within communities of color. And then it just it just talks about microaggressions overall and just different things. And then I also just recently finished, and this is again at the time of this that we're recording this podcast, I'm sure by the time I by the time this airs, I'll have read a lot more. But I just finished a hundred other girls by uh Iman Hariri Kia. And it's entertaining. Uh it's if you like the Devil Wars Prada or the show that was on the CW and Freeform, the bold type, you will enjoy this book. I want people to read it. And I'm very excited for this first time author as well. So I don't want to 
necessarily portray some of my opinions about this book because they do pertain to race and they do they it, this book was written in 2022 and I just think that there's like a few things she could have done a lot better when it came to race but I do think that that's the interpretation of it is up to the reader so I don't want to put my own opinions on other people if you want to read this book I, I did enjoy it it was entertaining but I just think that there was a couple other choices that she could have made. <laughs> Got it. Well, I'm actually going to right now go add both of those to my personal TBR. And listeners, yes. I invite you to join me. I will include links to both of those books in the show notes for this episode. Go check them out. Go support your local booksellers, indie booksellers Absolutely. with bookshop.org. And you mentioned, Jordan, you've had Instagram lives with some authors. Tell us what yes. you have going on over at Completely Booked. I know you have a book club. You create amazing content on your Instagram. Oh, thank you. Where can people find you? What are you doing? Yes, absolutely. So at underscore completely booked is where you can find me on Instagram. That's where I post mostly, although I was convinced yesterday that I should start a TikTok. So maybe by the time this podcast goes live, I'll have a couple of things posted on TikTok as well. But I do, I have a monthly book club every last Tuesday of the month. We meet virtually. We do have members from across the country. So that will always be virtual, which is exciting. And we've been lucky enough, blessed enough to have the author on with us every month and reach out to them and they say yes. And they come on we have really great, powerful conversations about the books that we read. It's always a, an author of some kind of minority author, right? Whether it's a woman, a person of color, LGBTQ plus member, you know, all of those different things to make sure that we are reading different stories from different people that allow us to just see each other and understand each other a little bit more. I know a book is not the end all and be all to understand about a group of people, but it's a start. And I do think that it starts just like this podcast here starts very powerful conversations that can then spew into life actions. So that's where I am. I have a product line. If you go on, it's it's interesting. I have a twin sister. So if you go to completely booked and go to the link in my bio, you will find my products, but it's Jordan and Joel online dot com is the actual website of where I have tote bags, bookmarks, and notebooks uh, for sale for all of your bookish needs. Well, we all have a lot of bookish needs. I mean, I personally <laughs> have a lot of bookish needs. And I appreciate so much what you're doing. Thank you for bringing a slice of that to this episode. Listeners, you will have links to all of Jordan's content in the show notes. And then I will also be linking out on Instagram this week. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me, Jordan. And I hope to have you back sometime. Oh, same here. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much for reaching out and for revisiting this, this great book with me. What a journey it's been. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>